The song that we've just sung, the words that we've just sung, I should say, are, are really a futuristic uh, thinking. It requires a, a futuristic mindset. In other words, the song opened with, I see the king of glory coming in the clouds. Well, that's not a present day thing, you would agree. We don't go outside and we see Jesus coming in the clouds yet. It's really an inner view, is it not? An, a view on the inside of our mind. That's the imagination. We're, we're speaking of imagination these days uh, in, in our collection. And it is a gift that God has given to us to envision a generation in the future that is being raised up. To envision Christ coming on the clouds in the future. This, this is all the gift of, of this, this uh, capacity that, that God has given to us. We know from the Bible that imagination can be used for God's glory. It can be used against God. It's like every single gift that God gives to us. It can be used for light. It can be used for darkness. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And so I propose to you that we could engage our imagination for God more often. As we, as we begin to look at the Bible, we look at at men and women who have exercised faith in what God is doing and what God is going to do. And when you read the Bible and you look at the pattern of the Bible, you'll notice that God recognizes and rewards faith. It is something that, that uh, stimulates his heart. It is something that he recognizes and spotlights. You might remember that Abraham had faith in what God was saying. And we're told that God rewarded that. He recognized that. He credited that as righteousness. You might remember the, the woman who came to Christ, and she had the faith that when she touched Christ, even touched his garment, that Christ was who he said he was, and that he, Christ had the power to heal her. And he said, it is your faith that has healed you. It's not your good works. It's not your intellectual savviness. It's not any of that. It's, the, it's, it's that faith move. So if you were to look in the Bible and you say, hey, let's, let's take a look at a chapter or a portion of the Scripture, the Bible, where we see examples of faith. If you know anything about the Bible, then you would automatically say, let's go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 11. It's often called the, the Hall of Faith, kind of a play on words like the Hall of Fame. And the reason is that it lists so many of the A players, especially from the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and, and uh, David and uh, uh, Abel and, and uh, Samson, Gideon. They're all listed in this chapter. And each of them are listed because God is recognizing in them that they've had faith of some type. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin there. If you have a device and you have the Bible on there, you can zip that out too, or you'll see the Bible verses up on the screen. What I'd like to engage your thinking in this morning as you look at this passage, and we've, we, if you want to read it later in, in, in all this fullness, you'll see that this long list of, of people that I've just mentioned. But what you're going to see, not only is that they had faith, but what I would call futuristic thinking. In other words, they thought beyond what they could see in the present day, and because they had futuristic thinking, it impacted how they lived in the present. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. It begins with these words, all these people. All these people, if you read the context of the chapter, are the people I just mentioned, all these players, especially from the Old Testament. All these people were still living in faith, when they died, they did not receive the things promised. In other words, they were looking to God to give them something. God had promised them something. God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. He didn't see that before he died. God promised the, the, the promised land to Moses. He didn't see it before he died. And so they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Did they see them with their visible eye? No, they didn't see them. They, they saw them with, with what I would call your inner eye, your imagination, visualization. In other words, they imagined what this thing would look like and what it would be like. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking, envisioning 
a country of their own. Verse 15. If they had been thinking of the country they left, you know, for example, Abraham left the country of, of, of Ur, uh, Moses left the country of Egypt, had their minds been saturated with the country that they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. In other words, that's all I'm thinking about, back in the land of Ur, back in the land of Ur, back in the land, most likely they would have gone back. But see, their minds were filled with something else. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, one that they couldn't see yet, one that they could only imagine. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, in the future, he has prepared a city for them. You see, all these men and women of faith were envisioning something beyond their lifetime, and because they envisioned something beyond the lifetime, they were willing to do hard things in the present. It is my proposal to you today that the more you think about the future reality that God has for us, one way or the other, the more it will impact what you do today, what you spend, what you don't spend, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do. And I would also propose to you as we begin that as followers of Jesus, me included, we think too little of the future. That if we were to think more of the future reality that God has for us, like these, these men and women in Hebrews 11, that we would be changed and more impacted in our present if we saturated our mind with the things of the future. For example, Moses, as you might know, grew up in a palace. He had a very, what we would say, a cush life. For 40 years, he lived in a palace. He grew up and, and, and was educated in probably the top university in Egypt, as we find out later in the Bible. He probably had servants around him. He had handmaids around him. He, had a lot, he just had everything he wanted. But he was willing to step down from the palace into the pit, so to speak, and, and walk in the, in the most uh, difficult hardship. And the reason that he was motivated was not because of anything that the pit offered him, but he was motivated by what he could not see. Watch this. Same chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 26. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures that he had in the palace living in, in Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. That was the motivating factor that he said, hey, let me, let me, let me look forward and, and imagine what that might be. And because of that, I'm willing to take the hard road. We know this in our own culture, by the way, by, by athletes. Have you ever heard that athletes, they, they imagine, they visualize winning. They visualize the, the different uh, maneuvers of, of whether they're a skier or they're a basketball player or, or whatnot. And, and one of the guys that does this more than anybody I know, there may be somebody that, that does it more, but uh, of what I know in, in athletics is, is Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer. And so I've heard about this and so did a little research this week. And I, I found this a few articles, but one written by his coach, Bob Bowman. And he's, in this article, he was talking about Phelps and how, he, and how he visualizes and makes that part of his routine. By the way, Michael Phelps practices, you know how many days a year? 365. I can relate from that. I've told you my music story. Uh, greatness does not come easy. For those that have great skill, the Michael Jordans of the world, uh, the Michael Phelps of the world, you track their, their practice history, they work harder than, than, than the others on the team. So this article begins with what I consider to be a fascinating reality in the psyche of the human mind. Watch this. Bob Bowman says these words. You must program your internal viewfinder. I love that action. Now, you think back what we just read in, in the uh, book of Hebrews. See, these guys programmed their internal viewfinder. Now, if you're under 30 years old, you may not know what a viewfinder is. Um, so uh, our kids' viewfinder is their phone. You know, they're seeing live action. They're scrolling. They're seeing films. They got YouTube. They got all this. See, back in the day, we didn't have, uh, our high tech was plastic. And a viewfinder is this little thing, for those of you that don't know what a viewfinder is, this little, this little uh, you know, kind of look like fat binoculars, and you look through them, and you're like, chink, chink, and you, it would have this little, this little picture wheel, and it would change, right? 
And dude, that was a cat's meow back then, right? I mean, it was like 3D, right? We were looking through these things. And so what, the, what Bowman is saying is like, what you're looking through, you have to program that, your internal viewfinder. He's speaking of visual, visualization, and no one, in Bowman's opinion, does it better than Michael Phelps. For months before a race, Michael mentally rehearses for two hours a day in the pool. The guy's not even swimming. He's not moving his arms. He's not practicing physically. He's practicing mental. He's visualizing. Watch. He sees himself winning. He smells the air. He tastes the water. He hears the sounds. He sees the clock. Phelps takes visualization one step further. He sees himself from the outside as a spectator in the stands. He sees himself overcoming obstacles too. For example, what, what would he do if he fell further behind in a race than he intended? Phelps practices all the potential scenarios. According to Bowman, mental rehearsal is a proven, well-established technique to achieve peak performance in nearly every endeavor. Watch. The brain cannot distinguish between something that's vividly imagined and something that's real. Now listen. What Michael Phelps is doing is visualizing a possibility. In other words, it's possible that he's going to win. There's no guarantee that the guy you know, stands in a pool for two hours and thinks about winning that it's a guarantee that it's going to win. I want to be clear with you this morning. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about some hopeful possibility in the future. What I'm engaging us to, to, to do is to, first of all, understand the power of imagination but not to imagine a possibility in the future, but to imagine a reality in the future. You see, these, these men and women of, of the book of Hebrews that, were, that are listed here in Hebrews 11, they are visualizing, they are imagining the reality of, of what's happening in the future. In other words, it is going to happen, but I want what is going to happen to captivate my mind, because if I allow that to captivate my mind, it will impact the, the, the present of what I do. Are you following? Now, this is both negative and positive. In other words, I don't speed, not because in my car, not because it's always the right or wrong thing to do, but I'm envisioning a police officer sitting on the next block. Are you the same? Because when I'm, when I'm speeding, I, you know, not that I do or anything. <laughs> I'm a lot more vigil, right? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm vigilant. I'm, I'm looking because I'm imagining that white car with the lights on the top sitting in the next block. And that's the thing that often causes me not to speed, not because I'm a good boy. And I'm like, you know, speeding is wrong and I probably shouldn't do it. I probably run over squirrels and people. So I, I, I'm thinking, I, I'm envisioning the worst. There are certain things that we don't do because we're visualizing the actual negative outcome that could happen, and therefore, I don't want to do that. Do you know in our brain, there is a part of the brain, the frontal lobe, that the, that's the last thing to develop in the, in the, in the growth development of, of the brain. The problem is it doesn't develop until you're fully developed until you're about 25 years old. This is the part of the brain that measures risks and consequences. That's why we do a lot of stupid things when we're 17, no offense intended. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. That's why I did a lot of stupid things when I was 17. Perhaps your frontal lobe develops quicker than mine. Because there's not that capacity yet fully to say, wow, that could happen, therefore I probably shouldn't drive 98 miles an hour. On the other hand, sometimes we are often motivated and provoked to do something great because we can envision a reward at the end of that, that path or that choice. Today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about both. Now, there are some topics in, this, in the Bible that, that in church, it becomes uncomfortable. 
If you know me, and if you've been around 360 for uh, any amount of time, you recognize that I don't avoid those topics. The reason is I'm more afraid of God than I am you. <laughs> and so, there, for example, giving. Take a deep breath. We're not talking about giving. It's a, it's a sensitive topic. But you know, Jesus, if you listed all the things he talked about, he talked about that as much or more than anything else. So we must talk about it because there, there's a purpose to it. What are you talking about, Steve? I'm talking about the vivid reality of hell. Now, we're gonna, not going to spend our entire morning talking about it. But what I won't do is skim over it. And the reason that we won't skim over it is because love is involved. What oncologist would not tell you about cancer because he was afraid to tell you about cancer? Any doctor worth their salt would say, I gotta be honest with you. There's, there's something that's really terribly wrong here, but there's a solution. That's what a good doctor does. That's what a good practi- practitioner does. Otherwise, you know what they call, if, if they're gonna overlook a diagnosis, you know what they call that in the medical world? Malpractice, malpractice. So when we look at the Bible, what I would, what I would point out to you is that it's as if God is trying to evoke our imagination about the reality of the future. Otherwise, he might say to us, you know, there's this place that's not heaven, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it, and I'm not going to say any, any more about it. I'm just going to leave it like that because I know it's a little sensitive for you. See, if you're God and you are seeing the reality of an eternity away from God, away from himself, man, you're, you're going to talk about it. You're going to say, hey, let me, let me give you some descriptive, uh, uh, you know, vivid pictures of what that might be. So quickly, um, I, I'm, we're not going to land here because there's a better, there's a better thing to talk about and that the solution, there's a solution to it. But the Bible gives so much description of both heaven and hell. We're going to look at those for the reason that I believe that God is trying to captivate our thoughts with the reality of the future because it will impact what we do today or what we don't do today. Some, some vivid descriptions of hell. We're just kind of, I just kind of did a bullet point list of the, what the scripture says. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, Revelation 21. Psalm 9, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead, Matthew chapter 13, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, hell, where the fire never goes out. Matthew 3, unquenchable fire. Revelation 14, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. 2 Thessalonians 1, chapter 8, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and separate it from the presence of the Lord. That's the worst of everything, by the way. Matthew 8, they will be cast out into outer darkness. Mark chapter 9, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. What reckless person would not mention the reality of that for the future? That would be absolutely, insanely reckless. And so when when I'm speaking to you this morning, hey, this is not a message that you're like, hey, I can't wait to tell people about this one. But if a person really loves another person, say, hey, let me tell you what eternity, what the Bible says, not what I say, but the Bible says about an eternity away from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. No different than you would tell your best friend about a bridge that had fallen off, the the end had fallen off, and they were going to go into this cavernous uh, area and and die. You you would be not a good friend if you didn't say anything about that. In fact, I would say that Jesus tried to evoke both towards heaven and hell, tried to evoke the imagination. Do you remember Jesus? He was telling his disciples about 
this, these two men, a rich man and a, and a guy named Lazarus. Now, how we know this is not just a parable is that he uses names. He, he used the name Lazarus. He never used the name in a parable. He would say, and it's like three men who went blah, blah, blah. But in this story, what, what Jesus is doing is he's taking back the veil of what we cannot see. And just for a moment, he's saying, let me evoke your imagination about the reality of the future. And let me just pull the curtain back from, and, and allow you to take a peek into the reality. He says two men, rich men and poor men. doesn't matter if they're rich, doesn't matter if they're poor. It's not part of the story. One was with, one had accepted God into their life and were following God and one had not. That is the measuring stick, by the way, of heaven. It is not whether you've done good enough, whether you've been in church enough, whether you've done any of that. It's whether or not you've said, I am gonna be, I'm gonna accept what God has done for me through Christ, and I'm going to take Christ's gift on, I'm gonna accept it and believe in it, so that when I stand before God, it will have nothing to do with how good I am. It will have nothing to do with how many times I've been in church. It will have nothing to do with my intellectual savvy. It will only be according to what I've accepted from God and say, God, not me, but Christ. And I will stand before God, and when he says, Steve, why should I let you into my uh, presence? I will say one, one answer only, because what Christ has done for me, and by faith, I've accepted that and received that in my life, and I'm depending on that 100%. That's the only answer we can ever give to him. So there was one man who, who accepted that, and one, in this case, Lazarus, and one man uh, who did not accept that. Jesus is saying, let me give you a peek of the future, trying to evoke our imagination of the reality of what's going to happen. And this rich man, the one without God, said, I've now seen the reality of it. Please, I beg you, God, to let me go back and tell the people I love about this reality. God says, too late. It's too late. Once you're in A, you can't go to B. And the good news is once you're in B, you don't have to go back to A. <laughs> and there's no, there's no, there is a separateness here. Why in the world, listen, why in the world would Christ bring that story up if hell were not real? Why would he do it? Just use a little fairy tale, a little fable, you know, to kind of scare people into to believing in the God? No, I believe Jesus evoked their, their imagination, their thinking, because it is a reality. Some people ask, hey, are you trying to scare me with hell? Yes. Yes. No different than the, you would say, are the doctors saying, hey, if you eat charred meat every three meals a day, it's going to affect your colon? Are you trying to scare me? Yes, I am. Quit eating charred meat three, days, three times a day. That's not good for you, Right? Don't, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, because they're going to be, uh, are, are you saying, are the doctor, you're trying to scare me to not smoke cigarettes? Sure. Because the reality is that the consequences are, are very real. They're proven. They're historical. And Jesus said, let me, let, me, let me just open up the curtain. What does that mean for us? Let me, let me tell you what it means for us. It means two separate things for two groups of people in our room today. Maybe you're seeking God. But I want to tell you that God is seeking you. When I was seeking God, I was starting to look for God. It was very unusual. I played in a rock band. I didn't have anything to do with God. I had no interest in God whatsoever. And so all of a sudden, I thought I was looking for God. What I found out, he was looking for me. You know, the mission of Jesus says, he said, here's my mission, really easy. I came to seek and to save. I came to search you out, and I came to save you from what we just talked about. I came to save you from your own sin. I came to save you from your lostness away from God, your separateness away from God. You see, if we don't know that we're sick, if we don't know that we're a sinner, because that's a, kind of a dirty word uh, these days, if we don't know we're a sinner, then, then how do we know we need a Savior? You see, I thank God for the person who was a trumpet player. His name was Tim. I, I thank God for Tim. Can you remember his last name? I thank God for Tim who back in the 1970s began to tell me that, hey, man, you need a Savior. Why do I need a Savior? Because you're separate from God. I could have said, you know what? That's really offensive to me. So 
Here's what this reality of hell means. Then we'll move to the good news of heaven. I should have saved this message for Christmas Eve. That would have been a real uh, home run. If you're here and God is pursuing you and you, as you pursue him, this is a reality that you don't want to avoid. I would propose to you that if you, if you are wondering, gosh, I wonder if I'm, I, I've made that commitment. I, I believe in Christianity more than I do Hinduism or uh, you know, uh, is, Islam. Or, you know, I, I kind of live in America, so Christianity is kind of a natural thing, so I, I kind of believe that, I guess. But you've never accepted Christ. You've never come to an intersection where you personally have said, God, I am a sinner. And all my brokenness, I cannot stand before you and offer like, hey, I got a B plus, I'm good enough now. And by faith, by dependence, I'm going to take Christ today. And as a sinner, I need a savior. Please, God, save me. If you've never come to that place today in your life, man, the reality of your future is absolutely more horrible than your imagination can muster. Now, that's me loving you, to be honest with you. It may be offensive to you. I'll take the risk. I'll take the risk. We had, we had a person in the first service that said, hey, I want Christ today. And uh, man, I'll take the risk any day, any day to, to speak the truth to you. For, us as, for, us as, for those of us that follow Jesus, here's what it means to us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a confession I allow the reality of hell to escape my thoughts too much. Because if it captivated the reality of an eternity away from God, if, that, if the reality of that captivated my thoughts more often, then I would be less of a coward when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus. My confession to you. God, please, please allow my mind to me more open to the reality of this. You know, there is a moment of, before we move to, to heaven, there is a moment of, of a reality that, that will come. Because the Bible says that every knee will bow and every mouth will confess. It's not some, some knees, most knees, many knees. Every knee will bow. And it will be the biggest aha moment of the human race. Like, oh, wow. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, even if we stood up, we could get the effect. You know, everybody in the room like, wow, and do it together. Can you imagine like, you know, uh, raised stadium, like everybody standing up at the same time, packed house. Wow. Can you imagine 10 times that many people? Can you imagine 100 times that many people? Can you imagine... 700 gajillion people all at the same time going, wow. And they're going to confess that Christ, that is the future reality. You see, Christ came to seek and to save because God never intended for us to exist in hell. God never intended for us to live away from him. He intended for us to live with him. We broke his heart as we broke his rules and laws. And God said, let me come to you and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And for that reason, he gives to us another vivid uh, reality, and that is the vivid reality of heaven. And as much as we ought to be evoked by the reality of the, descriptive, the, the descriptions of hell, we ought to also and equally and even more be motivated and invigorated by the reality of heaven. You see, Moses and Samson and Gideon and Abraham, as we saw in Hebrews 11, they saw a distance. They saw another city, and that's what motivated them. Not only should we be motivated to save our, the, the friends that we know by, by, by crashing through the gates of hell, but we ought to be motivated because heaven is more than we can ever imagine. It is a place that is so incredible, mainly because we'll be with God. Watch this. Here's some descriptions of heaven. John 14, Jesus says, I will come back and I will take you to be with me 
that you also may be where I am. That is the best thing about heaven. What's the best thing about heaven? Jesus. That's it. If you don't think that's a big deal, go ahead and start your confession now. It's all right. Revelation chapter 21. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. And mom, there won't be any more pain. Oh, I can't wait for that day. Oh, my goodness. Last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. There will be no more night. And they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun or a flashlight because the Lord God will be their light. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that, not even that. He didn't know how to describe it, John. He was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul got caught up into heaven and he said, I heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell that will rock you two off the map and the New York Symphony, the Philharmonic. Paul said, it is, well, let me tell you what, hey, I don't know how to tell you. That's how heaven is going to be. It is inexpressible. I'm not even allowed to tell you how awesome it is. Can you feel God trying to evoke your imagination of how unimaginable heaven's going to be? Man, if if we were saturated with it. Watch this. Revelation chapter 9, 7. Verse 9, John, who, who wrote the book of Revelation, which trans, Revelation was transported into heaven. He said, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That, I, I would list that as a gajillion. No one could number from every single nation, from every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. I want to go. I want to live for that. How about you? And if you're without Christ, look at what you'll miss every day. Forget religion. It's stupid. It's man-made. Put your mark on the relationship you have with God. That is, religion is, is, has been the demise of millions and millions of people. If your mind is caught up in religion, you'll miss it. You've got to seek God and God alone because he is seeking you every day to save you. There is a moment where every knee will bow and every mouth confess, regardless if it's an atheist, a pluralist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Christian. Every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a moment. There's a moment. If you are not secure in your salvation of Christ, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, there is a moment where you will not be able to hide. Right now we can hide, right? We can come to, we can play church, we can do all that stuff. Adam tried to hide. He was separated from God. But there's a moment where we cannot hide. In Revelation chapter 20, John said, I saw a great white throne and God, him who sat on it, from whose face the, the earth and heaven tried to run. They fled, fled away. But there was no place for them. There'd be no place to hide in, in the future. So why not, why not take Christ on as Savior now? Why not say, God, forget religion. Forget all the obstacles. God, I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved. And by faith, I reach out for Christ. Later in our service, we're going to give you the opportunity to pray privately that prayer. Let me talk to to believers. Do you know we'll stand before God? We'll stand before Christ? And We won't stand before Christ, let me assure you. We will not stand before Christ for him to determine if you're a follower of Jesus and you've accepted Christ into your life. We will stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ, but not for Christ to determine 
our eternal destiny. That has already been settled and been secured. Once we are a child of God, God cannot unchild us. We are a child of God. What if I blow it next Thursday? You're a child of God. What if my middle schooler blows it next Thursday? Is he no longer my son? Maybe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just playing. Of course not. He will always be my son, right? But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me explain. It is a different place than the great white throne. This is not the great white throne where God will determine who is in and who is out. This is the judgment seat, or the Bible would, in the original language, call it the Bema seat, B-E-M-A, the Bema seat of Christ. Now, let me say openly that far too many Christians know far too less about the Bema seat. Why would I say that? I would say that because if our minds, like Paul, who said, I run to get the race, I'm full throttle, I press with everything in order to get the prize, in order to, to run this race, to get the prize. Paul understood what the Bema seat was, and I tell you, it saturated his mind because it, imp and it impacted his present. So when Paul begins to speak about the Bema seat for us and you know in the English language, we think, gosh, what is that? But the Bema seat was like the Olympian games, the Olympic seat. That's something we would understand. You find most of the talk about the Bema seat in the book of Corinthians because in Corinth, right outside, they ran what was called the Isthmian games. The Isthmian games were like the Olympic games. And at the end of an Olympic game, you know that the, the, the winners would stand, you know, like they do in the Olympics, they stand on their, their platforms and they are awarded the bronze, the silver, or the gold. This is the Bema seat of Christ. We will stand before the Bema seat of Christ, every single one of us. We did an entire collection on this about three years ago, and because of its importance, I'm thinking about bringing it back and saying, hey, let's review that because it's such a reality. Here's why it's important. You will be there. That's why it's important. I spoke to a, a really long-term friend of mine, goes to a, a very large, large church. And I was talking to him about exchange. I said, hey, so we talk about the Bema seat. He said, what? The Bema what? What is that? He represents too many Christians who don't know that we will stand before Christ. And Christ will say, hey, he will either say, ah, come on, man, you should have you you know, kicked it in a little bit more. Or he will say the thing that we hope he will say, like, way to go. Well done. Man, you, you poured it out. This is what Paul was living for. Okay, here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul speaking to Christians, he said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If you look in the original Greek, you would, and you look at the word judgment, it's the word bima. So I'm going to, just so that we can understand it, I'm going to substitute the word Olympic. We will all stand before the Olympic seat of Christ. Watch. That each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the present while in the body, whether good or bad, but not whether you're going to heaven or hell. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day that we're standing before Christ will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, and this is what you want to put on the fridge. He himself will be saved. That's the great news. We're not standing there to determine whether we're going to heaven or hell. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, if we stand before God as a Christ follower and we've just kind of piddled around our whole life, God's going to say that's going to, it's going to just go up in flames like, man, you don't have anything. Come on into heaven, which will be awesome anyway. But then, then that will be the end of it. So some of you might say, hey, that's fantastic because I just want it in. Yeah, I've heard people, you know, I've heard people say, yeah, I'll just be a street sweeper in heaven. That ought to be awesome. Well, it probably is awesome. But it's like the infomercial. But wait, there's more. <laughs> well, what do you mean, Steve? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. 
But I know there's more than sweeping streets. How do you know that? Because Jesus tried to evoke our imagination. You remember this, the parable of the talents. He gave one guy 10, he gave another guy five, he gave another guy three or whatever it was. And then they stood before him, the master, at the end of their life, and he said, wow, way to go. You took 10 and made 20. That's fantastic. Watch what he says. Watch. Luke chapter 19, verse 17. This one comes up. He's multiplied. He's, he's really put it out for God. Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter in your lifetime, sir, uh, take charge of 10 cities. What is that, Steve? Beats me but it sounds better than a street sweeper. <laughs> Just imagine, sometimes I imagine, you know, not the Billy Grahams are, are, are of the world, but I look around and sometimes I just see somebody serving. Honestly, I think of this often. I look at them serving like, I can't wait. I can't wait to see them standing before Christ and looking into their eyes and say, I'm giving you 28 cities. And we're all going, wow, 28 cities. Whew, man, that's, that is amazing. Just imagine that. In other words, Christ is saying this, it's real. Forget the harps and the clouds and all that stupidity. We're talking about cities. What does that mean? I don't know. I can only imagine. But Jesus, he said it again. The second came and said, sir, you gave me five mine, and here's five more. I multiplied. I, I, uh, he, he said, you, you, you take charge of five cities. Let me do a little commercial here. Let me tell you why I love our church, our family, our tribe, not mine, ours. I love our family because we're motivated by this. We know that we're going to stand before Christ. So we say, we want to make disciples. We're standing before Christ because we want to reach those that others may not be reaching. We're reaching foster kids who've grown past their age, like grown out of a foster home. We're reaching them in this city. We're reaching those who are pregnant moms and, and solo moms. We're reaching them. We're reaching the LGBT community. We're reaching those that others may not want to reach. You know why? Because we're going to stand before Christ, and this is Christ's heart. I love to hear the stories of churches, not just ours. I love to hear what God is doing is so stunning. It's why, listen, welcome to Meet 360, opening statement. Here's why we don't do 1,400 chicken dinners. <laughs> Anything wrong with dinner? Nope. Anything wrong with chicken? Nope. But man, time is short. And I don't want to be in a church that all we're doing is sitting around eating. Nothing wrong with eating. You know where I'm coming from? I want the future of the Bema seat to captivate the mind of our collective mind of our church to say, that's important. I got a call Friday afternoon from the Middle East. Hey, Steve, we got three out of four of the modules for exchange translated in Arabic. We got places in the regions in the Middle East and Northern Africa where we can use this. You see, God says, if you put your mind to it and allow God to do the work, then there is no end. We have teams leaving this summer for Cambodia. We got a meeting this afternoon for a team leaving to the DR. We got another team leaving this week for the DR. We got another team going to Cuba at the end of June because we're, we want to be where God is calling us to be and not fooling around because the future standing before Christ is a reality. So we would say, come on in. We have a mission field 500 feet right across the hall. Four-year-olds. We got a mission field on Wednesday night. We got a mission field. We heard last week, row four. If you come to Meet 360, I'm going to let, man, there's a mission field, and there is a place for everybody if you don't want to fool around. It's an exciting thing. Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. As I told you, I read the old guys from the past. John Wesley said these words, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. I wonder how many saddle sores that man had riding that horse alone in the dark, in the cold, in the rain,
in the sleet, lonely. Man, I can't wait. Imagine standing there as Wesley steps up to the beam of seat. Aren't we going to turn like, hey, watch this. Watch this. It's going to be amazing. If you want a book on the beam of seat of Christ, by the way, and you want to take out your pen if you're interested, let me tell you the one that I think is the best one on the market. And I say this because I think it's important for us to read something about the future. Erwin Lutzer, who's the pastor, been the pastor for many uh, years at uh, Moody Church in Chicago, such a well-established church, wrote a book called Your Eternal Reward. On my deathbed, if I had to list five books that would, that would be my top, that would be on it. It's that important. Erwin Lutzer writes these words, because our position in eternity will be momentous, the life I live today is momentous, eternally momentous. Only in this life can we impact our eternity. Only if you accept Christ in the present day will it affect your eternity. You can't change it once you get there. The person that you are today will determine the rewards that you will receive tomorrow. It's why Jesus' last words on the last page of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 read like this, Behold, I am coming soon. Now, I don't use that word very often. I don't know about you. Behold. Behold, how hitherto art thou. You know what behold means? Hey! That's what it means. <laughs> hey, I'm coming soon. That's what it means. Wake up. Hey, behold. Hey, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he or she has done in this lifetime. If that one thought could captivate our every thinking moment, God's church would be impacting the world like we couldn't believe. That's why I'll remind you of the words that we sang earlier. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I can't wait. And yes, I am jazzed. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, The future, God, is not a dream. It's a reality. So maybe God began to pray right now, God, to you, just openly and uh, just in a raw format, God. If hell, if we believe that hell is real, God, it would... And it would captivate our thoughts more as followers of Jesus. It would impact how much we share the gospel. So may we begin, God, with an apology that we, God, have not allowed the reality of an eternity away from you to impact us as it should. Especially, God, today, for those who are unsure that they, they have no solid sense of, yes, I am saved because of what Christ has done for me. And the reality of that future, God, is more horrible than we can ever imagine. And God, I know that's heavy, but it, it is a reality. So we're gonna pause here in this prayer as, as we continue to pray. And if you are here today without Christ, you, you would just be real with God. He already gets it. And you would say to God, just from your heart, forget religion. And you'd say from your heart to God's heart, thanks for looking for me. Thanks for pursuing me, even though I didn't realize that. And I am a sinner. not going to frost the cake. I'm a sinner, God. And I need a Savior. 
I need a savior. And I don't want to show up to heaven's gates thinking I've been good enough. Or I came to church or some kind of religion, God. But I need a savior that will rescue me, God, from sin. So today, I look at what Jesus did on the cross. I may not fully understand it, but I look to Jesus today to be my Savior, to take my sins, every single one of them, and wash them away, and to come and ignite, supernaturally ignite new life inside of me. Today, God, I, I don't want to walk out of this building without telling you that I, by faith, I absolutely depend on you now. By faith, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, in our, in our time of prayer, we, I like to pray for those that make these decisions. And so I'm going to ask, if, if that's you and you're like, hey, God, for the first time, I really want to accept Christ in my life never would think about embarrassing you just privately would you slip your hand up and say that's me I I want Christ for the first time in my life I I prayed that prayer Steve when you were when you were praying I was praying in my own version anybody in this room we'll we'll just pause here for just a minute anybody in this room that would just privately right now raise your hand and say for the first time I want Jesus Christ in my life of heaven and the avoidance of hell, God. Thank you that you are willing to pay the price so that we wouldn't. And so we get, for those of us who have accepted you, Father, and depend completely on you, we get to look forward to no mourning, no pain, no tears, no darkness. We get to look forward to being in your presence forever and ever and ever with the multitudes who will be praising you and worshiping you. And some in this room will rule over cities, many cities. Help us, God, to bring the reality of the future into our minds today so that we will serve you with everything we have. And Father, we we will remind ourselves as we close this day and close this prayer that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what you have prepared and are preparing for those who love you, God. And may we just run this race with the future to be such a reality. We give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus.